Well, good morning, Convergent Church. As always, it's a joy to be gathered here with you today as we sing the Word of God, we preach the Word of God, we show the Word of God through our communion, and we minister the Word of God to one another. If you're joining us for your first time, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church. We're about two or three months into this journey and still very much trying to figure out what we're doing, but that's okay. We appreciate your patience with us. Um, as Jameson mentioned last week, we just recently wrapped up our Kingdom Come sermon series. So the last uh, five weeks we had spent focusing on Acts chapters 1 and 2, and then next week we're going to be jumping into 1 John in a series we've titled Our Joy Complete. But in the meantime, we've opted to do a two-part sermon series on the ordinance, ordinances of the Christian church. When we hear the word ordinance, what do you think of? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought of like a, a city ordinance or, or maybe a law that was passed. And if that's what you're thinking, you're completely wrong, but that's okay. Uh, I was too. And frankly, the ordinances just aren't something that we spend enough time talking about uh, as a church, or we don't spend enough time explaining the significance of them. We call these ordinances simply because they were ordained by Jesus, the head of the church. He decreed them and he commanded them. There are only two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church. The first is baptism, which Jameson spoke on last week. And the second is the Lord's Supper or communion, which we will be examining today. We would say that the ordinances of the Christian church are outward signs of inward grace. They are the outward visible signs of the invisible inward work that God has done in our hearts. And these ordinances serve but one end, to remind our hearts and to focus our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ordinances are identifying marks. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are only to be practiced by those who have confessed with their mouths and believed in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. Because in partaking of these elements, in partaking of baptism, we are identifying ourselves as Christians. We are identifying ourselves as dead to sin, but alive in Christ. We are publicly displaying and declaring that we have died with Jesus, that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to cover all of our sin. And now the life that we live, we live resolved to walk in the newness of life with him. So we hear the gospel preached through sermons. We sing the gospel, as we just did, through our musical worship. We have fellowship here together this morning because of the gospel. We give of our tithes and offerings for the sake of the gospel, and we display the gospel through these ordinances of the church. So as I mentioned, today we're going to be talking about communion. So what is communion? Aside from being commanded by Jesus to do it, why do we do it? If you've been here more than once, you've more than likely caught on to the fact that we partake of communion every single week that we are gathered as a church every single Sunday. But what is the significance of that for us? What should we be thinking about when taking of the cup and of the bread? What is happening in us as we partake of these things? Like anything else, the more that we do something, the less we tend to think about what we're doing while we're doing it. Here's a little case in point. Let's consider a toddler taking their first steps. When your child is taking his or her first steps, you can see the look of determination in their eyes, can't you? 
They've got their eyes locked on where they are going, and they're going as fast as they can. You see their little legs shaking, like each step is being calculated as they get there. There's so much energy and thought going into, how am I going to get from here to there without tipping over? And then a few years later, they're learning how to tie their shoes, and mom has one song to help them remember how, how to tie their shoes, and dad has another song, and the kids are all entirely just confused, right? So as they go to tie their shoe, they're thinking, okay, I've got two laces here, Okay, now, now we've got to cross them. Okay, I think there's a loop or something. And I, I think I'm supposed to go over it or around it. And I'm supposed to pull through it. There's so much thought that goes into it. It's a simple task that we consider like tying our shoes. And then it seems like in no time at all, they are teenagers and they're learning how to drive. Do you remember the anxiety of when you first began to learn to drive? All the steps that, that it took before you could even put the car in drive, right? Like, okay, we've got to make sure that the seat is in a comfortable position. All right, our mirrors, our mirrors are in place. Okay, got the hands at two and two. Okay, now 10 and two. Now let's slowly shift the car into gear and let's ease on the gas and move forward. Remember those times? Or what about parallel parking? I've ridden in cars with many of you, and I, can, and I can tell that this is still something that's causing you a great deal of anxiety uh, and stress, especially right out here in front of Aviator Jane. We've got all these parallel parking spots. But as an adult, you've been doing all of these things for decades now. So when was the last time that you had to stop, concentrate on, and process how you were actually going to do them? When was the last time you had to think about taking another step? When was the last time that you had to think about how to tie your shoes? When was the last time that you had to think about how to drive your car? If you're anything like me, you actually walk so much that the, struggle, the real struggle is trying to slow down. And when you're trying to tie your shoes, you're thinking about the multiple other things that you need to do that day as you go out the door. And if you're like me, when you're driving, you're eating a hamburger or you're on the phone or you're contemplating the deeper things of life as you drive down a back road going like, man, this is not where I thought that I would be on the doorstep of 30. These are not the, the things that I thought that I would be doing. But nonetheless, here we are. And it, it's wonderful that out of the repetition of doing these same things over and over again, that our minds are freed up and they're more efficient, right? We can do these things while thinking about other things. However, my fear for us is that if we are not careful, we can easily enter into our time of communion in the same way. We can come to the table mindlessly thinking about all the other things, right? Like it's usually happening at the end of the service. We're thinking, okay, man, my stomach's growling. What am I going to get for lunch today? What do I got to get done? Okay, and then tomorrow I got to go back to work. After all, communion is something that we do as a church each and every week. It's something that many of us have been doing for decades now. So in the monotony of the week to week, from Sunday to Sunday, it's easy to do so absent-mindedly, and it can easily just become another, another one of those routines that I mentioned before. While our intellect may give assent to the fact that Jesus died for sin, it's absent of moving our hearts to rejoice in this glorious truth. There's a lack of remembrance at what all it took to secure our salvation, the very links that God went to redeem a wayward people like us. It's absent of laying hold to why we're doing what we're doing, getting to the very purpose of this ordinance. But let me tell you, friends, it's, it's so much more than just another task. And my hope and my prayer with this message today 
is that our communion would be more to, to us than just another check in the Sunday to-do list box. May it be more to us than a mere religious duty, which is dead orthodoxy. That is to say, our beliefs die when, we no longer, when they no longer live in our hearts, but only on paper. So just what should we be thinking about? What should be happening as we come to the table? What are the things that we should be mindful of? This morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, and we will take note of four insights into what communion is. First, communion is a symbol representing the gospel. Second, we will see that communion is a memorial, a call to remember the gospel. Third, it is a celebration, rejoicing in the gospel. And fourth, it is a proclamation resounding forth the gospel. But before we jump into our text, let's first begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. The God who existed in perfect community, the God who had no need for anything but chose to create a people. And God, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and rebelled, and when we followed them in that, God, you didn't leave us to meet the end of our own demise, but you came for us and you covered us in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would soften our hard hearts this morning, that you would open our deaf ears to hear, that you would open blind eyes to see the truth of the gospel as displayed in this communion. Lord, would your spirit come and lead us in the wisdom and in the revelation and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And God, may we leave here today not glorying in our relationships with one another or glorying in the great donuts that we had this morning or glorying in the music or even the preaching, God, but may we leave here glorying in you and in the miraculousness of your gospel. God, we are but unworthy vessels. We have no right to draw near your throne apart from Christ. But we thank you for giving us a new life and a new hope through this gospel. So God, will you work in our midst here now in a special way? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul begins here by saying that his instructions uh, regarding the Lord's Supper were not merely his own thoughts, but they were the very words that were spoken by Jesus at the Last Supper, as seen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. It is clear that Paul had also already instructed the Corinthians uh, in partaking of the Lord's Supper at some point in time prior to this writing, but now he is reiterating it because they had lost sight of what communion was all about. So in the verses leading up to this section, Paul explains that 
he's writing to them about the Lord's Supper again because there was division among them. He's also writing to them about communion because the elements were being taken in an un, improper and unworthy manner. He rebukes them because they weren't coming to the Lord's Supper for the very reasons that Jesus gave the ordinance to begin with. Instead, they were coming to serve themselves and to overindulge. Here's Paul's exact word just a few verses before. He says, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. We see some overdulging on the communion bread while others were actually getting drunk on the communion wine while still others were going completely without. That's what we see in verses 17 through 22. And then in verse 23, we saw, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's writing to them on the subject again because they had lost the very heart of the ordinance. He continues on to say that the night, uh, that the, uh, the, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. We see here that this ordinance was given on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. It was given the very night that Judas, one of his own 12 disciples, would betray him and turn him over to the chief priests and scribes to ultimately be crucified for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And then verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And this brings us to our first insight this morning as to what communion is. It is a symbol representing the gospel. Jesus used the bread and the wine as a symbol to represent what he was about to do and what he ultimately accomplished for you and I on the cross. The bread was the symbol of his body being broken and the wine was the symbol of his blood that would be shed. In the old covenant, the people of Israel had to make perpetual and continual animal sacrifices to atone for their sin. Hebrews 9.22 speaks to this fact when it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God required that they take their best bull, ram, goat, or their lamb without spot or blemish and offer it as a sacrifice for, these, for their sin. These animals were to provide a temporary covering for their sins and to foreshadow the perfect and complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was to come. These animal sacrifices served as a picture of what God was ultimately planning to do through his son Jesus. In this new covenant, there would no longer be the need for multiple sacrifices. There would no longer need to be multiple sacrifices made for sin. Instead, the perfect sacrifice was to be once and for all. The blood of Jesus would be sufficient to cover all the sins of all of his people for all of time. When John the Baptist saw Jesus first approaching, he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was for this very reason that the Son of God came down to earth. If you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know how it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Together, the, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all things, day and night, clouds and oceans, lands, plants, and trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, birds, and sea life, all kinds of animals. And then he created mankind in his own image and in his own likeness. And we are told that God looked out upon all of his creation and declared, it is very good. It was very good. 
And God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, dominion over all things. They were to take and to subdue, to be fruitful and to multiply. However, there was but one thing that God forbid of them to do. And that was to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. He told them that the day that they ate of this fruit that they would surely die. I know this is a refresher for a lot of us, but I never like to take these things uh, for granted. Shortly after this, we're given the account of Satan approaching them in the garden in the form of a serpent, questioning whether or not God actually said these things. The serpent assured them that they would not die and that God didn't want them to eat of it because their eyes would be open and that they would be like God. Side note, they were already like God. They were already made in his image and likeness. Satan was offering what they already had in God. Yet Adam and Eve took of this forbidden fruit, and at that very moment, all of mankind fell into rebellion against God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the effects of their sin, their, their sin spilled over into all of creation and onto all future generations. Similar, similar to how in the sport of basketball, right, when, when one player commits a foul, the entire team is penalized as a result. And that's exactly what happened to the human race. In Psalm 14, 2 through 3, bears witness to this when it says, The Lord looks down on heaven, on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And we are witnesses to this truth, are we not? No one had to teach us how to sin. It's interwoven into the very fabric of our nature as a result of the fall. For those of you who have, who have children, did you have to teach your children how to disobey you or did they figure that out all on their own? I think they figured that one out on their own. But here's the deal. The effects of the fall are everywhere. But not only did we inherit the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, but we actually continued willfully in that rebellion ourselves, even to this very day. We don't desire the good that we ought to desire, and even our best efforts to do good fall short of God's righteous standards because our motives are often out of selfish ambition. God was very clear with Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate of the tree. The scriptures clearly attest to the fact that the wage our sin affords us is death. And when Adam and Eve did sin, they were, they were instantly and ultimately made aware of their sin and they tried to hide from God. Yet here's our first glimpse of the gospel. God pursued them. More than that, he provided an animal sacrifice and covered them, atoning for their sin. What great mercy God displayed in the garden, withholding the punishment that they deserved. And what great grace he manifested in the garden, giving them unmerited favor, giving them favor which they did not deserve. This first animal sacrifice and the animal sacrifices that we would be made over the next several thousand years were but a foreshadowing of the final perfect atoning work that God would do in offering up his only son as the payment for our sin. We serve an unchanging God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. That from the garden to the grave and to this very day, God has pursued his people and he has made a way for their redemption, for their rescue from sin, for your and for my rescue from sin. 
Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came and lived the sinless, perfect life that we were unable to live and died the sinner's death on a cross that we deserved to die. And with his life, paid the once and for all price for the sin of his people. He absorbed all the sin upon himself. He took upon himself all the wrath that our sin deserved. And the word testifies that if we believe in our hearts and if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved, that his death, that his absolving of sin is applied to us. Now, friends, if we will but believe this truth today, we stand holy and blameless before the God of the universe for the sins, not only of our first parents, but for the sin that we have willfully followed in. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 5 real quick. We're going to look at verse 8 and then we'll skip down to verse 17. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Today is the day of salvation. Do you believe in the sufficiency of this good news? The Lord's Supper serves to us this day as a symbol representing this gospel. The good news that the Son of God came to this earth and offered up his body and shed his blood to pay the final price for our sin. And this leads us right into our second point this morning, and that is this. Number two, communion is a memorial, remembering the gospel. Let's read uh, verses 24 through 25 one more time. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this uh, in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper serves to us as a memorial, a time in which we are called to remember the gospel, to remember the sacrifice Jesus made for us and the cost of what he accomplished for us. This is my body. body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And the word remembrance here means to have a time of deliberate recollection done to better appreciate the effects of what happened or to affectionately remember who he is and all that he did for us. As I mentioned earlier, it can be all too easy in the busyness of life and in the monotony of doing the same thing over and over again to merely give intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus died for sin. But he is calling us to so much more than that. He's calling us to remembrance, to a deliberate recalling, to, a, to affectionately remembering. It's one thing to try and remember what you ate for lunch yesterday. 
and something else entirely to think and to try and, and to remember a loved one who passed away, isn't it? Two different kinds of remembering. One, what did I have for lunch yesterday? One, this is a loved one that's passed on. And this is a person that I love. And this is a person that I miss dearly. And I know that the loss of a loved one is something that's still very fresh for several in the room this morning. I know that just in the last couple of years, uh, some of us have lost a mother. Some of us have lost a father. In the last year, this last year, uh, I lost my own. Uh, I lost my brother unexpectedly. And I can attest to the fact that it's one thing to intellectually recall as a fact to a group of people here, such as this, that my older brother passed away last year. That's one kind of remembering. But it's something else entirely to come across a picture of him and affectionately remember that moment in time that the picture was taken and to sit there to deliberately reflect on that particular day. There are certain instances when I can close my eyes and vividly remember all the details of that particular moment. I can see what he was wearing. I can hear his laugh. I can almost feel the warmth of his embrace. I can replay the conversations of the day. And in all of this, not only is my intellect engaged, but also my heart has a whirlwind of emotions overtake it. A smile as I remember some of the stupid things he would say. Sorrow as I miss the ability to just call him and to spend time with him, making new memories, yet rejoicing the fact that he's now worshiping Jesus around the throne. His faith has become sight in the pains and the sorrows and the sins of this world no longer have a hold on him. All the while, I eagerly await for the day when my faith too can be made sight and when I can join him around the throne, ascribing all glory and praise and praise to the Lord. I share all that just to give us a better understanding, uh, understanding of this remembrance that Jesus has called us to when partaking of the bread and the cup. It's more than merely mentally recalling facts, but involves deliberately and affectionately reflecting on the ends that God went to in bringing about our salvation. Jesus didn't just die for sin. He died for your sin, and he died for my sin, the very sin that we've partaken in even as recently as this morning, perhaps. For all of it, he came. This call is a call to remembrance, and it's a call to come to the foot of the cross. And it's a call to look up and to behold the sinless Son of God hanging there in our place for our sin. After the Last Supper, in the upper room, when Jesus had given this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, he went with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray to the Father. He tells his disciples that he was deeply sorrowful and troubled and proceeds to fall on his face and pray this prayer three times. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in the extreme mental anguish and anxiety of knowing what he was about to do to redeem his people from their sin, he literally began sweating drops of blood onto the ground as he prayed. This is a rare medical condition. It happens uh, as a result of severe emotional anguish. 
Jesus uh, was enduring and these, his calipary blood vessels that fed his sweat glands began breaking down so that his blood and his sweat were intermixing and then exited his body onto the ground. Later that night, as Jesus was at the garden with his 11 disciples, Judas led the crowd to the garden to take Jesus into captivity. Jesus went without sleep his last day on earth. And as they questioned him, they spit in his face and they slapped him and they punched him repeatedly throughout the night. When the morning came, the chief priests and the elders made the decision to put Jesus to death and took him before Pilate to get the approval of the Roman government. Pilate found no wrong in Jesus, but in fear of his superiors, he let the Israelites make the decision between freeing Jesus, the innocent, sinless Son of God, or freeing a murderer named Barabbas. And they chose the murderer over the sinless Son of God. It's at this time that Jesus was then taken into the governor's headquarters. The whole battalion gathered there and they stripped him naked and with his hands bound, they began flogging him from the shoulders down to his upper legs with a cat o' nine tails. This is a whip that consists of several strips of leather. In the middle of the strips were metal, metal balls that hit the skin, causing deep bruising and tenderizing the skin. In addition, sheep bone was attached to the tips of each strip. When the bone makes contact with Jesus' skin, it digs into his muscles, tearing out chunks of flesh, exposing the bone underneath. The flogging leaves the skin on Jesus' back in long ribbons. By this point, he's already lost a great volume of blood, which causes his blood pressure to fall, and it puts him into shock. Of this, the prophet Isaiah prophesied and attested years before that he was marred beyond all human likeness for our sake in this process. And the Roman soldiers placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and a robe on his back. The robe helped the blood on his back clot to prevent Jesus from sustaining more blood loss. And as they hit Jesus in the head, the thorns of the crown began to push into his skin and he began bleeding profusely. The thorns also caused damage to the nerve that supplies the face, causing intense pain down his face and neck. And as they mock him, the soldiers also belittle. They continue to spit upon him again and again. And then they rip the robe off Jesus' back, reopening the wounds of his flesh again. And then they made him carry his cross that he was about to be crucified on through the crowds of people who cheered and who mocked and who proclaimed, crucify him. This was an hour and a half walk up the hill of Golgotha. And he did this until his body gave out and somebody else had to assist in carrying the cross. Once they had reached the top of the hill, they laid him upon the cross and they placed Jesus on it and they proceeded to drive nails into his wrists and into his ankle. But we are told that like a sheep led to the slaughter, still he did not open up his mouth. And as the cross lifted, Jesus' full weight pulls down on the nails of his wrists. And his shoulders and elbows dislocate. In this position, Jesus' arms would have stretched a minimum of six inches longer than their normal length. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on his diaphragm, and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. Jesus was pushed his nailed feet up on the cross simply to gain a breath and to exhale. The difficulty surrounding exhalation leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. 
The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen, and he began leaking fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in the build of a fluid around the heart and the lungs. In his collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissue essentially suffocates him. The decreased oxygen also damages his heart, which leads to cardiac arrest. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. And after his death, the soldiers went to break the legs of the two other cr criminals crucified next to him. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was dead. So they took and they jabbed a spear into his side and out came flowing water and blood, referring to the watery fluid surrounding the heart and lungs. Yet in all of this, the physical anguish would not have been the most painful part for Jesus but rather the bearing of all the wrath we deserved and the weight of the guilt of our sin upon himself. He had only ever known perfect community with the Father. Yet the Father had to turn away from his Son because he cannot look upon sin. And this is what led Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as unpleasant as it can be to bring about all this to remembrance, it radiates forth the depths of God's love for you and I and the extent that he was willing to go to reconcile us to himself. For the very people that turned their backs on him, for the wayward sons and daughters that ran from him, for all who have chosen their own glory over God's, for those who've broken God's just laws, for these and more, the Father offered up his Son to bring about the forgiveness of your sin and of my sin. This was the cost of our redemption. And it's easy to lose sight of this. It's easy to forget the great links that God went for us. Just as much, we all too easily forget where we were when God saved us, the very extent of our rebellion. Yet this is the extent that the God of the universe went to secure your salvation and my salvation. This is the extent he went to rescue us from our sin. And as we come to the table this morning, we come remembering this good news, deliberately recalling, affectionate reflecting with our heads and hearts engaged. That is to say, this remembrance ought to move our emotions to worship. And this brings us to our third point this morning. Number three, communion is a celebration, rejoicing in the gospel. Our remembrance cannot stop at the death of Christ because Jesus is not dead somewhere in a tomb in the Middle East. The grave could not hold him. And on the third day, he arose from the tomb victoriously, not only conquering our sin and delivering us from its power over us, but conquering death once and for all. And in Jesus' conquering of the grave, we have a hope not only for this life, but for the life to come. Matthew Henry said it this way, it is not barely in remembrance of Christ, of what he has done and suffered, that this ordinance was instituted, but to commemorate, to celebrate his glorious condescension and grace in our redemption. We declare his death to be our life, the spring of all our comforts and hopes. When the defendant in the court of law hears the verdict, not guilty. What joy springs forth. 
the reality of all the accusations of wrongdoing against them being absolved, being reunited to the ones they love, being given a fresh start, and thus a hope for the future. Seldom can they contain these emotions. Tears of joy begin to to, to flow, praise resounds through the courtroom, shouts of victory are in the air, hands are clapping. It's too difficult to contain the excitement. They've been given another chance at life. And my friends, we are that defendant. Yet our not guilty verdict was not given on any merit of our own. All of us were completely and utterly guilty of the plaintiff's accusations against us. Yet Jesus came as our advocate. And he came with evidence. He came bearing witness with this declaration. I've atoned for their crime. I've atoned for all of their sin. I've made perfect restitution. I took the punishment on myself. Justice has been served. But unlike the aforementioned plaintiff, Jesus didn't just give us a second chance. He gave us a new life entirely. He removed our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh he placed his spirit inside of us as the guarantee of our inheritance to come. Not only has our past debt and record of wrongs been canceled, but the present and future as well. And more than that, we get to spend eternity with him in heaven where there is no sin, where there is no death, where there is no sorrow, where there are no tears, where we too will be united with our loved ones. And that's worth celebrating. Yet, often we lose sight of the magnitude of what God has done for us. I don't know about you, but I've been to a lot of churches where when the Lord's Supper is practiced, it feels more like a funeral than a celebration of victory. The air is thick. You could hear a pin drop. It's solemn. It's somber. It is perpetually sorrowful. And while remembering the events of the cross should move us deeply, and while confronting our own sin against the God of the universe in true repentance can and should move us to tears at times, we cannot stay there. Because the fall, sin, death, and the grave no longer have a hold on us. They are conquered foes. And we have victory over all of them through Christ's substitutionary life, burial, and resurrection. So may the tears of sorrow be turned to tears of great joy because God knew what he was getting himself into when he chose to save you. It's when we were at our furthest that God came for us. And because of the sacrifice, there is therefore no condemnation for our sin. We stand just and righteous and holy and blameless before the God of all creation. He is our father and we are his children in whom he takes great delight. Because of this truth, we can approach his throne with confidence all the more, even in our struggles and even in our sins because they've already been paid for. And that's worth celebrating. Let's continue on into verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our fourth point this morning is this. Communion is a proclamation, resounding the gospel. Each time when we partake in communion together, we are actually proclaiming forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim his death until he comes. When we partake in this communion, it is the visible representation of what God 
has done in us. It is the visual gospel. We are proclaiming to our hearts and to one another and to the unbelieving world that we follow Jesus, that we belong to him, that his death was sufficient to cancel the debt that we owed. While we hear the gospel preached in sermons such as this, we see the gospel displayed each and every time that we partake in the Lord's Supper together. The Protestant reformers used to say, uh, these ordinances are the visible words of the gospel. While we hear the gospel preached with audible words, we see the gospel displayed with visible words through the ordinances. So I want you to think for a moment about an athlete and picture them putting on their jersey and hitting the court. Without words, they proclaim whom they belong to and for whom they labor. Their jersey tells us who they represent. Or what about a soldier? When a soldier puts on his uniform, brandishing his country's flag, without words, he proclaims to who he belongs to and to who he battles for. His uniform proclaims who he represents. And so it is with the church. When we partake in the ordinances, when we are baptized and when we partake in the Lord's Supper, without words, we are proclaiming to ourselves and to one another and to the unbelieving world to whom, we, uh, to whom we belong to and to whom we labor for. King Jesus, who placed our sin upon himself, who bore the wrath we deserve and who has liberated us, not only bringing us into his kingdom from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but making us fellow heirs with him. When we partake in communion, it's a visual proclamation that we belong to Christ. That when his body was broken and that when his blood was shed, it was on our behalf. We are now dead to ourselves and dead to our sin and dead to the desires of our own hearts and alive to Christ and actively following after him. Communion is a proclamation resounding the gospel on display for all to see. This is who we follow. This is where we find our sustenance. This is our only hope in life and in death. Christ Jesus and him, and him crucified. So as we wrap up this morning, communion is a symbol that represents the gospel. Communion is a memorial, a call to remember the gospel. But just as much, it's a celebration, a reason to rejoice in the gospel. And communion is a proclamation resounding forth the gospel. Communion is more than just a symbol. It's a proclamation. And it's more than just a memorial. It's a celebration of victory. Communion is the gospel on full display. And Convergent Church, we live in labor to see God's kingdom come to Owasso. We live to see his gospel go forth and for his rule and for his reign in this city to become increasingly visible. We didn't start a church in Owasso because there aren't any good churches. We started a church because 90% of the city does not know the hope of the gospel. 90%. So when we come to the table in just a few moments, may it serve to us as a reminder of the gospel. May we remember it, may we rejoice in it, and may we preach it to our hearts so then we can leave this place and take it to our families and to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to the 90% of our community that does not have this hope. We live and labor to see God's kingdom in Owasso 
expand. To see the worshipers multiplied as this good news goes forth. We live in labor for the day when it's uncommon for someone in Owasso to not partake in the Lord's Supper on Sunday. Can you imagine that? An entire city redeemed, an entire city won to Jesus. And that starts here. And that starts now, preaching the gospel through the Lord's Supper to our own hearts and displaying its rule in us.